Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. This is the first time I've set out to address this topic in some kind of public statement. Uh, so I want to own to begin with that my own thinking on this is something of a work in progress. Uh, with that said, let me just proceed to the substance of the talk. Uh, put some things on the table for you all to chew on. Uh, and hopefully when I'm done, we can have a kind of discussion. And as I said, I don't even mind if you guys interrupt me during the talk. Uh, but let me say at least a little bit before we get to that. Um, so the topic I'm addressing today uh, is one that I take to be of great importance for Catholics living in the contemporary world. Whether Catholics can be adherents of classical liberalism. That is, uh, Catholicism being the faith that the Thomistic Institute promotes, and classical liberalism being the principles, both political and anthropological, and the political forms which were defended by and articulated by individuals like John Locke, Montesquieu, um, Benedict Spinoza, and the American founders. The form of thought and the form of politics that shapes the modern West and affects the whole world today. Um, the status of liberalism is, as I'm going to discuss, a somewhat fraught question in Catholic intellectual history. Uh, but before I get into the meat of this, I wanted to say a little bit more about why exactly this topic seems to me so urgent and so urgent now. Um, so to begin with, in speaking on this issue, I'm responding to a trend that I've noticed among serious-minded Catholics today, especially young serious-minded Catholics, uh, which is a tendency to disavow liberalism as such. There are some prominent voices in that group uh, who go by the name of integralists or integralists, I've sometimes heard, um, they want to suggest that the problems we face, come on in everyone, um, the problems we face uh, in the modern world, the, the problems we face in the modern West are in large measure products of the liberal political order in which we live, right? Um, uh, and they trace some of the difficulties we face to the articulation of those principles and the attempts to build systems of government upon them. When I think back about 30 years ago, I was just a kid and not <clears throat> deeply aware at the time, um, I recall the issue being rather different, right? Uh, liberal democracy at that time in history had a great rival in the world. American democracy in the West had a great rival in the Soviet Union. And it was pretty evident to almost anyone, Catholic or otherwise, that Western freedom was preferable to Soviet oppression. My own ancestors, uh, my mother's parents in this case, fled Hungary back in the 1950s to escape communist oppression. Um, in light of the alternative, the goodness of liberalism and the goodness of liberal institutions seemed obvious. 
But now what I see more and more of, especially as I was saying, but not only among young people, is a sense that there is something wrong precisely in liberal societies, that the real threats that we face are not threats from abroad, uh, but internal threats, corruptions in our own society and our own politics coming back to haunt us. As an example of this line of thinking, uh, I want to quote one of the more prominent voices, and I, this is in your handout, right? Um, uh, the Notre Dame political theorist, Patrick Deneen. You guys know I'm a political theorist by training, so Deneen and I are, uh, have, a, have a, we talk about the same kinds of questions, right? He doesn't know who I am, but, but uh, uh, we are, um, uh, but, but it's at least uh, 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 something we've got in common. Uh, he puts the issue pretty starkly in his, I would say, rather bluntly titled book, Why Liberalism Failed. Uh, I'm going to read a somewhat long quote from this book, which is in the handout. I'm not the first to quote this passage in a context like this, uh, but it's very revealing, I think, and states his position well. So I'll read. Liberalism has failed, not because it fell short, but because it was true to itself. It has failed because it has succeeded. As liberalism has become more fully itself, as its inner logic has become more evident and its self-contradictions manifest, it has generated pathologies that are at once deformations of its claims, yet realizations of liberal ideology. A political philosopher excuse me, a political philosophy that was launched to foster greater equality, defend a pluralistic tapestry of different cultures and beliefs, protect human dignity, and of course expand liberty in practice, generates titanic inequality, enforces uniformity and homogeneity, fosters material and spiritual degradation, and undermines freedom. That's a particularly clear statement of a sentiment that seems to me to be spreading. By the way, afterwards, I want to know how, how well I've anticipated what students at the University of Kansas think. I actually had no clue what, uh, <laughs> whether I was dealing with an audience that was going to be integralist, sympathetic, or integralist, uh, uh, anti-integralist. But tell me later. I'm going to put my own ideas on, <laughs> on the table first. Um, uh, I've noticed in my own university and in other places like that, a lot of students uh, who agree with this sentiment, right? And I found it especially among the students who really want to take themselves seriously, right? They feel like there's something wrong with the modern world, and they point to liberalism itself as being at the root of what they feel is wrong with it. That's why I thought this was an important um topic to address. Uh, in this sense, right, the reservations that are often stated about liberalism are products of a larger feeling of dissatisfaction. Uh, many have come to see the modern world as one that is increasingly, to use a term that I see and hear more and more, among both liberals and conservatives in the conventional sense, right, just right and left, uh, alienating, right? Um, that's not unique to Catholics. It's not unique to people who believe in God. It's not unique to conservatives. It's not unique to liberals. 
everybody seems to feel that. That sentiment, that term alienation, was popularized, though, by Karl Marx, right? Um, Deneen's list, this kind of synopsis of problems, gives us a good, I think, beginning point for why many people feel alienated from the society in which they live, like they're not a part of it, like they don't belong, like they don't have a home, and like they don't have a real purpose, right? His list is meant to, I think, speak to readers and, and, and uh, uh, students who are Catholic and non-Catholic. I would add to his list a couple of particularly concerns that I feel particularly strongly um, as a Catholic, uh, just the increasing coarseness and ugliness of our culture, the loss of any sense of beauty, um, basic points of Catholic social, moral, and sexual teaching that are opposed by our cultural institutions and often our political authorities and many of our educators, uh, and just the fact that blasphemous, I mean, to say something that I think is uh, important to liberal in, in its origins, Blasphemous speech is something that we tolerate and hear constantly, right? And, and that's not comfortable for Catholics. Given that, right, given those reservations, um, given this increasingly strong feeling of alienation and separateness, it's tempting to look back to the pre-modern world where we can see a cosmos that's articulated in an, ordinary, in an orderly way uh, where God and faith seem more immediately present all the time in every aspect of our life. And it can be hard not to conclude that they have something that we do not have and that in important ways, we're not as well off as, as they are, right? That something is missing for us. Um, I will own to begin with that it seems to me that there is something true in Deneen's and in others' critiques of modern society, right? The fact that we feel alienated, the fact that so many feel alienated um, is not a coincidence. It's not something that was equally true at all times and places in human history. And the world in which we live is a significant cause of that, right? Um, I will not even deny completely that that has something to do with liberal principles, right? Especially, I'm going to say, the liberal emphasis on autonomy, right? But if there are some excesses, genuine excesses, to which liberal doctrine can give birth, uh, it does not seem to me that we need to reject liberalism as a whole. In fact, at this time and in this place in which we live, uh, it seems to me that a limited embrace of liberalism is both the most intelligent, most honest, and best thing that we can, we can, we can do. So cards on the table for what's about to come. Um, I'm a Catholic who's basically friendly to liberalism. That grows out of both my own, own uh, not, 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 not friendly just to, to liberalism, but friendly to American liberalism. Uh, uh, I, I'm, uh, uh, I'm keenly aware of how much of my own life and even my ability to practice my faith I owe to that liberalism. And it seems to me that liberalism has done some great and significant and important goods in the world. But, 
to borrow a line from one of my teachers from graduate school, the French uh, Catholic political philosopher, Pierre Menant, uh, it seems to me that in order to love liberalism well, in order to love the liberal political order well, it is necessary to love it moderately, right? And that means loving it truly while at the same time pursuing through it a sufficiently robust notion of the common good um, and trying to maintain a sense of human nature in its fullness, which it seems to me liberal political philosophy does not always contain or does not always convey. So in the rest of my talk, that's my setup, that's my pitch, as it were, for what I'm going to claim. Um, in the rest of my talk, I want to do three basic things. Okay? Number one, I want to talk more about what liberalism is. Just define terms, get us more conceptual clarity than we have. Second, I want to talk about some of the early Catholic engagement with liberalism. I'm going to focus especially on the encyclicals of Pope Leo XIII, and especially insofar as they reflect the teachings of the namesake of our, our organization here, Thomas Aquinas. Finally, and most briefly, I'm going to propose for you all um, an answer to my first question, and I'm going to, just cards on the table, I am going to make a case that Catholics not only can, but at least in the circumstances in which we live, should be classical liberals, but moderate classical liberals, right? Uh, not ideologues, but lovers of the liberal political order for the genuinely good things it can do. Okay, so now I come to part two in my talk, the idea of liberalism. Um, in order to address this, I'm going to use one chief figure, who at least, and that'll make sense, by the way, to use of any, I mean, this is a good I, can, I, I told you guys you can ask questions as I go, but it crossed my mind. I, I've got a couple of brief stopping points where if someone wants to interrupt, but I think that's not a good time to interrupt, so I'll, I'll keep going. Okay. Um, uh, so, actually, that was a bad idea. Don't, 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 don't ask questions while I'm going, unless it's like you didn't hear something or I didn't say something clearly, and then, then we'll have a discussion at the end. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to use one main figure to represent what I understand to be the teaching of the classical liberals, and that's John Locke. Uh, Jock, John Locke has pride of place, is probably the single most successful spokesman, the single most successful evangelist for the liberal teaching. Uh, I would say he's not only, uh, uh, he's not the only important defender of liberalism, not the only interpretive, important interpreter of liberalism, uh, but for purposes of this talk today, I think the way that he comes at political questions gives us the best window into what liberalism is. So Locke uh, wrote in the late 17th century and in the very beginning of the 18th, um, to understand the bearing of his thought, it's important to know that he was writing after an event, writing about 100 years after, a little more than 100 years, after an event that caused some of the biggest changes in European history, um, and that's the Protestant Reformation, right? Um, Reformation is set off at some point. You can argue about the date. Reformation is set off at some point in the early 16th century. Um, and among the effects of the Reformation, direct or indirect, is 
the split of European Christianity, so that Catholicism is no longer the one dominant form, but Lutheranism and Calvinism also become very powerful. Uh, and consequent upon that, a century of religious wars. Uh, there are French civil wars of religion that occur immediately after Calvinism makes its, uh, make, makes its presence known there. Uh, the Thirty Years' War, and probably most relevant to Locke, um, the English civil wars. All of those are due in some way or another to the long-term outcomes of the Reformation. Um, the political teaching that we call liberalism, the political teaching that is liberalism, um, emerged in the wake of the Reformation. Uh, it was, among other things, an attempt to provide a new political doctrine that might help to limit the incidence of religious war and thereby create a more peaceful and more stable world. It was explicitly a break with the ancient account of politics and philosophy. Um, Locke is somewhat gentle in the way that he presents the break, but if you're familiar with thinkers like Machiavelli and Thomas Hobbes and even Spinoza in his way, right, all of them see their own thought as ushering in a new modern form of political life, right? They all want to create something that will no longer rest on the old Aristotelian foundations, okay? Um, as I mentioned, there are a number of defenders of liberalism, enormously important for the American founding, enormously important for the French Revolution, enormously important for many developments. Uh, Locke is particularly clear and was particularly successful. So we're going to focus on the basic contours of his political teaching. And though there may be some disagreement with him about particulars, uh, I think that he conveys the spirit of the teaching better than any alternative. So to begin with, um, have you guys read the second treatise of government, by the way? Who here has read it? Okay, good. I'm going to give a very good, good. So this is, this is, this is, I wrote this so that uh, you guys would not have to have read this. Okay. Uh, this is my synopsis of some of the chief conclusions of the second treatise of government. Okay. So Locke in his second treatise of government, which is the more influential of his two treatises of government. The first treatise of government is about uh, the Bible, and it's a refutation. It's at least a, an attempt at a refutation of the arguments about the divine right of kings. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that afterwards if you guys are curious. But for our purposes, it's the second treatise that's more important because it's there that he develops his positive political teaching. It's there that he states what he understands politics to be and how he understands it to work. The basic human situation for Locke is not one in which human beings are members of political societies who live under governments, but instead it's one where they are naturally free and equal. Those of you who know Aristotle's politics, uh, do you guys know Aristotle's politics? Okay, famous first, one of the famous first claims in Aristotle's politics is that a human being is by nature a political animal, right? And anyone who's not political by nature, who doesn't belong in a city, he says, is either a beast or a god, but not a human being, okay? 
Locke does not begin from that position. He denies that human beings are naturally political. And so in his state of nature, there is no government. There is no governmental authority. Um, his claim that we are by nature free and equal, by nature, underlined by nature, free and equal, um, is his version or his way of anticipating what later becomes the idea of autonomy, right? That we're not born with much of a natural connection to our fellow beings, right? But we are there primarily somehow for ourselves, right? Um, now, Locke does say that human beings in the state of nature are subject to what he calls a law of nature. It's the same, it's in English, but it's the same term Thomas Aquinas uses to describe the natural law, right? But that law of nature for Locke, that law of nature for Locke is very limited in its scope, right? Um, the law of nature tells us that we should protect ourselves, right? That we should not, we should, we should preserve ourselves physically, right? And that we should also preserve others where no nobler use, as he puts it, intrudes, right? Or where there's no reason that we would have to take their lives. So we have rights to self-defense, right? We have rights to, um, uh, we, we have rights to, to, to punish murderers. I'm not going to get into that, but we have rights to, uh, uh, to defend ourselves against criminals. But we do not have a deep obligation to the community as such. In fact, all of our duties, if you want to call them duties, derive from that concern for our own preservation, right? Um, from this starting point, Locke attempts to derive the foundations of government. For Locke, governments come into being when people living in this state of nature recognize its inconveniences, right? Um, to put the point briefly, this state of nature quickly devolves, and this is, you have to read Locke to see how this works, but this state of nature quickly devolves into a state of war and leaves people insecure in both their persons and their property. Recognizing that fact, sensible individuals will choose to enter into political society in which the rule of law can be established, in which conflicts between individuals can be adjudicated by an independent and one hopes impartial authority um, and where the judgments of that authority can be backed up with physical force, right? Where you basically create a police force that can... Uh, ensure that all of the, all of the uh, crimes committed against you are punished at least, right? Um, Locke claims that in doing this, we're not limiting our freedom, uh, but we're expanding it because when people can live more securely um, and without constant fear of the violation of their persons and property, they live more freely. People form this government by entering into what Locke calls the social compact. He's not the first to use that phrase, but he's an important one, um, uh, which is an agreement of every individual to cede some of his or her natural rights uh, to the government in the expectation that the government will protect them more effectively than they as individuals could, right? Um, so the social compact entails that the, it's, it's, just to, to lay this out, since this is new material I'm throwing at you, um, uh, social compact assumes that governments do not exist 
by nature, that they're created by human uh, ingenuity, human choice, human consent, right? Um, and it also entails that that government's purposes are set by the people who create it, right? And the purposes are what I'm about to read out from the next quote, right? Um, so to put this broadly, uh, one of the consequences of Locke's doctrine of the social compact is that government is limited, right? Uh, this phrase limited government, I think is probably, people still use that in high school history classes, right? So one of Locke's great inventions is limited government. He has a synoptic and brief statement on the purposes of government in his second treatise. I'll read that out, and that's number two on the, in the little packet. So he says, um, it is not without reason that he, that's the human being who wants to leave the state of nature, um, wait, did I give, no, yeah, this is what I gave you. Um, it is not without reason uh, that he seeks out and is willing to join in society with others who are already united or have a mind to unite for the mutual preservation of their lives, liberties, and estates, which I call by the general name property. The great and chief end, therefore, of men's uniting into commonwealths and putting themselves under government is the preservation of their property to which in the state of nature, there are many things wanting. Uh, you guys will probably hear in this language uh, an anticipation of the language of the American Declaration of Independence, right? Um, that the purpose of government is to secure the rights of there it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness rather than property. Um, uh, pursuit of happiness is more poetic. We could talk afterwards about whether that's a distinction without a difference for Locke. Anyway, the point is um, government is designed with only these limited purposes in mind, and it's not meant to serve higher or greater human ends than these. One implication of that, one important implication, is that for Locke, governments can also lose their authority when they fail to keep up their end of the social compact. Locke has an extensive teaching on that. I won't try to summarize all of it except to say that generally governmental authority is conditional. Uh, the relationship between individual and government is contractual and should the government violate any of its basic, uh, uh, basic points in the agreement, um, the people have a right to revolt. Okay, um, in addition to all of this, Locke's liberalism makes one other important contribution, which I'm going to skirt a bit in the lecture, but I'm happy to address afterwards. And that's the notion of religious liberty. Uh, that's emphasized not so much in the second treatise as, as in Locke's famous letter concerning toleration. Um, and the idea of religious liberty becomes one of the sorts of touchstones of his politics and theology as a whole. Locke, actually, my academic work at the moment is focused on, uh, Locke wrote commentaries on Paul's letters at the end of his life, right? And tried to kind of, uh, I would say, I would say, in my opinion, implausibly, but he tried to make it compatible with his own political views, right? And I'm happy to talk about that also later, but just remember, Locke is, is one of the figures, Spinoza too, but Locke is very strongly associated with religious liberty. Now, instead, I want to turn to the third part of my talk, right? Um, and that's the Catholic response to liberalism. How do Catholics view these teachings 
Is there a specifically Catholic position on them? What is it? Okay. So over the course of 17th and 18th century, um, Lockean ideas were adopted more and more widely. Uh, that's most obvious in America, but it becomes more common throughout all of Europe. There are other figures who intervene, like Jean-Jacques Rousseau in France, who's, uh, you know, when you translate Locke's ideas into the French Revolution, there, there's, there's, some, there's some interruptions, as it were. But Lockean liberalism, in some kind of modified form, becomes the salient kind of uh, basis for the political orders in Europe by the end of the 19th century. Um, and it's during the 19th century that Catholic thought really begins to engage with liberalism and modernity in a full-fledged way. Um, there are lots of documents we could point to. There are lots of Catholic figures. Uh, today, I'm going to cast my focus narrowly by looking briefly at one of the really key figures in helping the church find its way in the modern liberal world, Pope Leo XIII. Um, among other things, uh, his encyclicals defend a kind of return to Thomism. I'm not going to read out this quote, uh, but if you look at the next quote on your handout, uh, I've got, uh, uh, I have some lines from Leo XIII's Eterni Patri, right? Um, which was one of the first encyclicals he wrote. Uh, he wrote it before most of his main political encyclicals, and in it, he defended a return to Thomism as a solution to some of the modern problems, right? He made a defense of Thomas Aquinas's thought as responding to some of the crises that had grown out of modernity. Um, I will only say, so... In relying on Pope Leo XIII, I know I'm just choosing one example. There's much more, as you guys know, there's much more Catholic thought than his, uh, just in terms of volume. But I find his encyclicals uh, particularly important for shaping the Catholic response to liberalism going forward uh, and for helping to, in a way, revivify the study of Thomas, who didn't exactly fallen into disfavor, but less study of Thomas occurred during the 18th and 19th century in Catholic theology than did before or afterwards. Um, so in Leo's encyclicals, there are two main critiques of liberal political theory, uh, which I would like to bring out. Um, two ways in which he attempts to resuscitate Thomas as a critic of liberalism. First, Leo does not accept the social compact theory of the origin of government that we saw in Locke. He takes that position firmly and directly in the encyclical Immortale Dei, speaking out against finding the origins of government in human decisions, right? Or in believing uh, that human beings by an act of choice or will create government. Um, indeed, uh, following St. Thomas and St. Paul, for that matter, Leo asserts that the origin of political authority lies in God himself. As he puts it, here I quote just a line from the encyclical, it is evident that the origin of public power is to be sought for in God himself, 
and not in the multitude, and that it is repugnant to reason to allow free scope for sedition. Um, this suggestion in both Thomas's case and Leo's comes from St. Paul's famous remark in chapter 13 of the letter to the Romans. Uh, this I've also given you guys in the little handout, so I'll, I'll read, read just, just this briefly. Um, St. Paul says, uh, let every soul be subject to higher powers, for there is no power except from God and those who are ordained of God. Therefore, he who resists the power resists the ordinance of God, and they who resist purchase to themselves damnation. To this, I would like to add St. Thomas's gloss on this passage. This comes from his commentary on Romans. Uh, and this is also in your handout, right? Uh, yes, good. So I'm going to read, I'm not going to read everything I, I included, but I'm going to read the second part of it. Um, I quote, uh, what he, that's Paul, calls higher powers are men established in power to whom we owe subjection according to the order of justice. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. And he says, this is the kind of kicker in Thomas's teaching, and he says, indefinitely higher powers so that we may subject ourselves to them by reason of the sublimity of their office, even if they are wicked, right? Um, be submissive to your masters, not only to the kind and gentle, but also to the overbearing, right? So the suggestion here, and this is the split with Locke, is that our obligations to our community are not conditional on the sovereign keeping up his, her, its end of the contract, right? Um, they are inherent and God-given duties, right? Um, now, I know this is a little bit of a surprising thing because it makes it sound like Thomas is a, it might make it sound like Thomas is some sort of quietist, right? Who believes that, you know, you should let every authority run roughshod over you for the sake of God. That is not Thomas's position, right? Um, and I want to say why I think this is different from Locke's. For Thomas, um, there are, as for St. Paul, as for Pope Leo, right, there are indeed instances when it may be necessary to break with the governmental authority, right? But those come not from some sense that the government is not keeping up its end of the bargain with us, right, but that the government is violating some part of God's law. So for instance, uh, if you're commanded to commit a sacrilege, right? You should never do that. Leo says that. Oh, I think Leo says that. I'm sure Leo would say that. Um, uh, Thomas says that, uh, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not something, there is a limit to this authority, but the limit comes not from below, right? From our character as autonomous, self-seeking individuals. It comes from above, right? So from God's uh, law as it's given to us, right? And in that sense, our community obligations, there is no social contract, and our community obligations are not conditional in the same way for Thomas and Leo that they are for Locke and for classical liberalism. 
Closely connected to this is the second chief way in which it seems to me the thought of Leo and Thomas diverges from that a block, uh, and that's the issue of the status of the individual. And here, by the way, I'm in great agreement with Deneen about one of the problems in liberalism. Uh, Rerum Navarum is probably Leo XIII's most famous encyclical. I think it's the most studied. It's at the origin of much 20th century Catholic social teaching. Um, uh, the title of it, right, of the new things, or if you like, a revolutionary change in English, you can translate it either of those ways, indicates its subject. It's really trying to deal with the new world and show what's different about it. That encyclical happens to be focused particularly on questions of economic justice, fair treatment of workers in the wake of the Industrial Revolution, right? Um, among other things, that encyclical targets the excessive individualism of liberalism and argues in favor of a more robust understanding of human beings. Uh, it understands our ends not as the acquisition of property, the realization of just our own, uh, uh, the, the protection of ourselves or the realization of our own internal capacities, but sees the human end in virtue and in service to the common good, right? In context, he has in mind especially the problem created by economic greed, right? People who would pursue wealth at the expense of others, but the implications are broader, right? He rejects the narrow individualism that you can find at the root of liberal, much liberal thought. That difference, I would say, comes across most clearly and most evidently in the difference between the way that Thomas talks about the law of nature and the way that Locke does, right? Remember, I had mentioned before that for Locke, the law of nature directs us to our own self-preservation with certain additions, right? For Thomas, in the famous 94th question of the Prima Secundi of the, uh, the Summa, right? He gives an articulation of natural law as yes, beginning with self-preservation, but which also treats human beings, human nature, in light of a greater hierarchy of ends. That ends, in, those ends include our families and the, 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 it, they include our families, the common good of our communities, and even on some level, service to God and not or at least knowledge of God, as, as he states it there, right? The understanding of human nature that Thomas offers, that Leo shares, right, um, is broader than the one that Locke offers, right? It suggests that we are, I mean, there's another way of saying that we're political by nature, right? But that means that by our very nature, we have a concern for and even an obligation to the common good, right, that often trumps our desire to do what's best for ourselves as individuals. Um, okay, so in those two senses, I would suggest there's a split between what I would claim Catholics, what, what I would claim is the only consistent, the only genuinely Catholic position on the nature of the human person and Locke's account, right? Um, and also on government. So now I'm going to come to my conclusion, and I'm going to try to keep this brief, right? I think I went longer than I meant to. 
Um, I've tried to sketch out what I take to be the basic bearings of these questions. Uh, and I do think, as I've said, that a, a Catholic cannot be unqualifiedly a Lockean or a clan. So therefore, cannot be unqualifiedly a classical liberal, right? That at least in theory, there are important differences between classical liberal teaching and the Catholic account of human nature. But I would also say that in fact, that does not make it impossible to be a friend of a Lockean regime or a regime whose theoretical principles are Lockean or to put that differently, the fact that a Catholic can't sign up for all the theoretical principles of liberalism doesn't mean that they can't be a good and loyal citizen of a regime with a liberal political order. Indeed, I would suggest that at least in our current circumstances, it's not only possible for Catholics to do that, it's good and prudent and wise. Um, and I would give two main reasons for that, right? Or two, 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 two main, two main, two main grounds for that. Um, the first is that uh, precisely as Catholics, we owe something. Precisely as people who recognize, who, who share the Catholic—I mean, I don't know. Actually, I, I don't know if everyone here is Catholic. You don't need to be Catholic to be part of this talk. Here, I'm speaking personally for me, right? As a Catholic. Uh, I recognize that I owe something to my liberal political community simply because it's mine, right? Um, Aristotle and Thomas uh, and Leo, right, all recognize that we have something political in our nature, which means that other things being equal, we have, if, if, if no, not other things being equal, but so long as no higher duty intrudes, we do have a commitment to our, our communities, right? Um, here I would just note that when St. Paul wrote in Romans that we should serve our community, whatever it is, right? You should, you should, you should uh, be, be uh, subject to it. He was probably writing to Romans living under Emperor Nero, right? One of the worst tyrants you can imagine. Even in those circumstances, the political community deserves some deference, even if it's not always consistently just, right? Um, but I would add a second reflection to that, or a second thought, which is this. Um, it seems to me that at least in the present circumstances, liberalism is not only a distantly viable political order, but a genuinely good one, right? And one that serves great, real human goods that can be recognized even within a non-liberal framework, right? Even if one doesn't accept social contract theory and liberal individualism as the foundations of one's politics, right? Um, uh, since the end of the 18th century, the United States of America has had a government based on liberal theory, right? But it hasn't always been so hostile to Catholicism as it often seems, or to religion generally as it often seems to be today. Um, in fact, if we look back at our country's history, uh, it seems to me that some of it's great, that it's had some remarkable achievements, and that those have often occurred because we were trying to apply liberal principles. I would point to the abolition of slavery as one, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the civil rights movement of the 60s as another, and just generally 
the fact that people of vastly different religions are able to live together in relative peace um, as Catholics, it's kind of a miracle that we found a place where we can practice our faith and even evangelize others peacefully, right? Think of, it's not part of my talk, but when I think of the best, the, the deepest Catholics I know, so many of them are converts, right? And they could convert because we now have this, one thing that liberalism does make possible is the, at least, evangelize is evangelizing right the statement of the the kind of a defense of the catholic message the whole world over right so i guess i would just conclude with the following right um it seems to me that we should as i was saying at the beginning love liberalism moderately right um the moderately is important uh, living in a liberal society, I think, is un I think that much of what Deneen says is true. That untrammeled, that an untrammeled, unfettered concern for autonomy makes us selfish. That there's so many things that are related to our political order that cloud our judgment about what's most important and lead us to lead worse lives. But loving the liberal order moderately also means loving it, right? And that means I would suggest engaging politically with it, right? Don't give in to the kind of despair that sees all political action as hopeless. Don't give up if I can if I can act like a like if I can if I can be the sort of patriot I am openly for a moment. Don't give up on America, right? Um, which I sometimes see in some of these these uh, you know you know, you know writings, right? Um, uh, some some at least integralist adjacent folk will, will say, no, it's, it's, it's poisoned. It's all fruit of the poison tree. It doesn't seem to me that that's the case. It seems to me we've lived better in some cases under a liberal political order than otherwise. Um, and we've had enormous successes too. I, I, I don't want to close without mentioning that uh, we're less than a year from the overturning of Roe v. Wade, right? One of the great accomplishments, a great Accomplishment, I mean, I know a partial accomplishment, I know there's work to do, but a great accomplishment that was made possible by real, honest, deep political engagement with their regime and not disaffection and giving in to alienation. Um, so to sum up, right, I just encourage you all to try to be moderate friends of liberal, classical liberalism. Seriousness about what's good. I'm sorry, I didn't, go ahead, yeah. No, you're okay. Um, so I guess I've, I've been seeing the same thing as, as you have seen of, um, integralist adjacent, um, politics, I guess, spreading the mana, uh, particularly younger generations and younger Catholics. Um, and while I'm sympathetic to the integralist critiques of liberalism, um, I absolutely disagree with their solutions to those problems. Um, so how do you think we can, um, I guess, how do you think we can convince um, integrous adjacent people of um, the goodness that there is to be found in liberal theory while also kind of um, acknowledging the genuineness of their criticisms? Yeah, uh, I mean, how do you do that? That's a, tr <laughs> it's a tr tricky question. Some people are, you know, you're not going to make progress with some people. Um, but but that's not the important part of the answer. I would say it's just a mix of like 
by the life you live, right? Showing that there's something appealing about being a real citizen of a democracy, right? A citizen of a liberal republic. I mean, there's something, you know, in a way, my complaint, this is not, this wasn't the way I put it in the paper, but um, uh, in a way, one of my complaints about integralists is that they don't have much of a taste for politics, I think, right? Politics is this, I mean, politics, if it's really about, if it's really what Aristotle had in mind with politics, right? You don't want it to be about the imposition of an order from above. You don't want, you know, you don't want it to be, you don't want to live under a bureaucracy that just tells you what to do. And that would be true to some extent, even if it were a basically good bureaucracy, right? Like I, I feel, I think as Catholics right now, we feel, I feel, I don't know who I'm speaking for here, so I'll just keep saying I feel uh, very strongly, right? That there are major institutions in our society, government bureaucracies, educational bureaucracies that are really opposed to what we think, right? Um, uh, and I, understand the temptation to want to grab hold of those same institutions and just stick the same thing down someone else's throat. But I don't think it's prudent. I don't think it's really going to, I think it's, it's, it's untrue to just our nature as political beings, as beings who want to live with one another as, as friends and fellow citizens and talk to one another and, and this is the most important thing, which I, um, see, I have a last quote on there that got, that got excised from the paper uh, yesterday because I realized it was too long. Um, but one thing I think Catholics should realize is that politics is a very important vocation, but it's not the highest, right? And we can live, I mean, the, the last quote is from Pope Benedict XVI, right? Uh, writing as Joseph Ratzinger at the time speaking about Augustine, uh, the extent to which Augustine even wished the Roman Empire well in his circumstances, but that was because he understood, let me just read the end because it's very beautiful. Um, uh, uh, okay, so he says he was, he was you know, he's, he's friendly to the Romans. I'm just going to read the last sentence, but he says he's, he's friendly to the Romans, uh, but he didn't want to, um, <laughs> this is my friends sometimes talk about, imminentize the eschatone, right? Like take the perfect, uh, take take the, bring the city of God fully into being on earth, something like that, right? And that won't happen, I think. And this is this is here's, I, I think this statement is very nice. To the ex, uh, to that extent, the Christianity that was now lawful by intention. So he's talking there about um, Constantine legalizing Christianity, right? Um, uh, uh, this is him reading Augustine. So then this is him in like 1962, so before he was even a cardinal, right? This is just him as a lecturer. Um, uh, was also revolutionary in an ultimate sense since it could not be identified with any state, but was rather a force that relativized everything that was included in the world by pointing to the one absolute God and to the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, Right? I think one of the toughest things for Catholics who are interested in politics to do is to thread that needle, right? Avoid that skilla and the Charybdis. You guys know skilla and Charybdis from the Odyssey, right? So avoid, on the one hand, this, I don't know which I'm going to make which, but to, uh, avoid the skilla of politics is pointless, right? I want my moral purity and I'm not willing to deal with anyone else. And the Charybdis of, you know, making worldly political success your only goal. I don't know. 
It's a very long-winded answer because I don't really have one. I don't know how you persuade people. I try to give talks like this to persuade people, but, um, <laughs> uh, but I don't know how much it works. Thank you. Yeah, Jenny. Um, so my question, or I guess I'll start by saying my previous assertion. Um, really big classical liberalism fan, really big John Stuart Mill fan. That's, I'm not as familiar with Locke, but I would say your talk has tempered me a bit. Um, so definitely not in the integralist camp. And I guess my question is more related to law. And so like, I feel like the elephant in the room is like common good constitutionalism, but I'm gonna sidestep that, but I will ask you that later. Um, and so my main question is what's the limiting principle in terms of that in like being loyal to a, our constitutional order, for example, like when it comes to the first amendment and, um, is it how far in line do we need to be with the like liberal order of first amendment rights i'm thinking of like uh skokie or something like that or even with roe v wade in terms of leaving things to the states and taking that kind of more hands-off approach or even seemingly like condoning things that we find morally repugnant in uh judicial opinions sometimes handed down by like catholics how Mm -hmm. How do you grapple with that? Yeah, my answer is that it's a matter of... Uh, so Aristotle and Thomas talk about this virtue of prudence, right? And prudence is, among other things, a virtue which is about applying principles properly to different situations. And that means trying to figure out... And, and the reason that they attribute this to a virtue rather than like a rule, right? is that the question of when exactly you need to take a stand, right? When exactly you have to say, no, this is no good. And when you have to defer to, I mean, in this case, I would say constitutional principles, right? Is going to be a thorny one, right? Um, there's not, there's not like, like you can't, I think it's, it's untrue to the nature of the question to try to give an answer that's just, here's a rule that you can apply. But I'll say a couple of things. Um, uh, first, I'll say again, right, the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned through constitutional means is an amazing achievement, right? Uh, it, it reminds you a little bit of like a, a, a Lincoln, right, who wanted to abolish slavery but do it through the Constitution, right, rather than through extra constitutional means. And that's preferable to, you know, just rejecting the Constitution altogether and, and re rejecting political life altogether. Um, I would say there are some lines that need to be drawn, right? Um, uh, if we ever get to the point where the United States government commands us to, you know, affirm a blasphemous teaching in order to be a citizen or, you know, a, a, you know express loyalty to a God who's not God, um, that would be a break, right? Uh, that, when the, the, that sometimes the divine law um, God's law is more important than the, requires you to give up the political law. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.